0: Hello friends, welcome to Ents and Sensibility, the podcast for everyone who loves bold, witty women, awkward, handsome men, and dragons. I'm your host, Casey Meserve. Together, we're exploring Jane Austen's novels one chapter at a time, doing close readings, looking at sources, talking about Jane's life and influences, and new remixes of these classics novels, especially those with a fantasy or sci-fi flair. I hope you enjoy the ride. Today I have a really fun episode for you, so let's get right into it. I am talking with author Julia Seals about her new Regency mystery novel, which came out this summer. Today I am speaking with Julia Seals. She is the author of A Most Agreeable Murder. Welcome, Julia, to the Ents and Sensibility podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. So let's jump right into it. Um, I read it. I loved it. I thought it was
0: hilarious um, in in all the good ways.
1: (laughs) Good. Um, Thank you so much. I'm so glad to hear that. I really just want people to have a fun time reading and to have a laugh. This book
0: is a murder mystery set in... Regency era England. So tell me how you came up with that
1: concept. Of course. Well, I am a huge fan of Jane Austen. Obviously, it's a, a parody coming from a very loving place. And I'm also a huge fan of Agatha Christie. And um having read both of those authors growing up, I just had a dream of kind of mixing the two of them together. And um during the pandemic, I wrote the majority of the book and I just really felt like, I wanted to live in those those comforting worlds. Weirdly, Agatha Christie is comforting, but it's like, you know, the detective always gets the bad guy. Everything gets resolved in the end. And kind of the same thing with Jane Austen, where it's like, they get married, everything's, you know, happily ever after. And I feel like there are weird similarities between those two worlds. And to me, it just made sense that the two would pair well together. I, th- I feel like you're right. Christy is so stylish and they're just such comfort
0: readings. Like mm-hmm. in the middle of the night, you're reading about these grisly murders and you're like, oh, this, <laughs> this is great. I love this.
1: You're like, let me just pour myself a cup of tea and read some of this. <laughs> <laughs> Beatrice
0: Steele. She's the main character. Uh, she's our point of view character from I think the entire book. Uh, there's a little bit where it's one of her sisters, but mostly it's it's her. She reminds me of a mix of Lizzie Bennett, uh Marianne Dashwood and uh, Miss Marple.
1: Oh, I love that. I mean it was definitely intentional to take a lot of pieces of those characters and um, you know, create my own detective. I I love that. I think there's a little Catherine Moreland sprinkled in there as well. But yeah, I mean, I'm a, a huge fan of of all of those characters. And I, I definitely wanted to bring in those character traits that we all love and have read. And especially with Jane Austen, I think those characters are, they're so fun to watch in this world where, you know, they're interacting with all these interesting characters in a small town. And I think adding the the crime solving element is so fun because I think these characters are so observant and they would make really good detectives. Like Elizabeth Bennett picks up on so much about people and, you know, Marianne is so attuned to emotions. Like these things could be very helpful in crime solving. Catherine Moreland is so
0: ready to believe anything and ready. She's kind of ready to accuse everybody, but at the same time,
1: she's not that far off. She's not far off. And she has these, these stories in her mind that it's like, I think that is beneficial for a detective where you are looking for a motive, especially in the, in this historical period where it's like, you can't rely on DNA evidence. You have to figure out the story of what happened for yourself And then, of course, Miss Marple, you know, she's she's such a perfect detective because she's just all up in everyone's business. And this is the best way to solve a crime. I almost said Poirot,
0: but she's definitely not a a, Beatrice is not a Poirot. She's not a professional detective yet. She's and she's definitely up in everyone's business.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think I think to me. Drake was more of the Poirot Sherlock character where it's like he is more about the facts, the evidence, the professional detective perspective. And I I think the two really need one another in order to to work at their sharpest. What's interesting about Drake is you think at first that he's more of,
0: of the uh, the sidekick mm-hmm. uh, to to this very famous detective who lives in London and and is very proper. You think that guy is more of the Sherlock and and that Drake is more of the Holmes character, but he's really, it's really more of a even say more of a flip-flop. And I also don't want to ruin the ruin the story for anybody, but he is much he's a much better uh detective than anyone. Uh, initially thinks he is especially well especially Beatrice
1: yes yes I think probably we've all we've all had a job like that where you're working more behind the scenes but you're like I'm doing so much and you don't from an outsider's perspective you don't always see what's going on and sometimes people doing the most work don't get the credit what did
0: you do before you became an author is this your first novel or
1: This is my first novel. Um, Before this, I was working um, a little bit in TV and film. So I was the writer's assistant for um, the upcoming Mr. and Mrs. Smith show on Amazon. And actually on my last day working there, I got the call that I had sold the book. So it was very exciting. Oh, that's perfect Um, (laughs) timing. Yes, it, it was perfect timing because it was that moment of, you know, concluding a job and being like, what am I going to do next? Um, So I was very grateful for that, but I also assisted a showrunner. I worked a little bit in um, college development and philanthropy for UCLA. So I've I've done a little bit of everything, but I have been writing books since I was a teenager. This is the first that I've gotten published, but it's been a long process of finding my voice and finding that story that, that just hits at the right time. So I'm very, very grateful to have the opportunity to do what I love
0: that's so exciting it's I'd I'd really like to talk about some of the characters and the settings so the setting it really made me think of Monty Python where the 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 king built the castle and it fell into the swamp and then he built another castle and that fell over and then fell into the swamp tell me about how you chose this setting and where this where the setting came from first Mm -hmm. of all and it also has a spooky mansion too
1: Yes, well, I do love Monty Python. I'm also a huge Princess Bride fan. I love all of these kind of spoofy settings. And, you know, I feel like in a lot of English literature, especially from the Regency era, there are these, like, mysterious moors and mansions. And I wanted to create my own version of that. And I'm also from Kentucky, and we have a lot of sinkholes and caves. It's kind of a weird... um, area and I remember growing up we had a sinkhole in our front yard and I was always told like don't go play by the sinkhole because you know they can fall in and then there can be a cave and I just wanted to go there so badly there was something so alluring about it and so the idea of the squelch holes it's kind of based on that and then of course you know the princess bride like sort of spooky swampy the lightning um, the more. fire swamp and the lightning sand yes. yes absolutely and you know just growing up I also I went to um college in Nashville and we had crazy hail sometimes there was literally would be like eyeball sized hail that sometimes would happen and I just there's something about that crazy weather and you know we always stay in Kentucky if you don't like the weather in Kentucky just wait because it's it's It'll be 80 degrees in the morning and then at night it's snowing. It's like, it's so all over the place and it just keeps you on your toes. And I think um, for me, it's, I think every good mystery should start with a dark and stormy night. It just feels right.
0: uh, uh, New England, we say the same thing. If you don't like the weather, wait five minutes because it's going to change. It's going to (laughs) change. Martin Grubb is one of those characters that you want to pin every murder on he is so <laughs> disgusting in every way he must have been so so fun to write
1: oh yes i i had a really fun time writing him i i it's funny hearing some reactions from readers like it's just too gross and i'm like you know i have only brothers so to me i was like eh, it's not <laughs> not that crazy no they do the, all of those things yes yes but <laughs> I I had a lot of fun just kind of taking the Mr. Collins type character and turning him up to 11 so <laughs> I, I had a good time with that <laughs> he
0: he is very Mr. Collins if Mr. Collins picked his nose
1: yes <laughs> if that was and worse you know sometimes like there's a gentleman and he'll do a very ungentlemanly thing and it happens and just because someone is part of that sphere doesn't mean they necessarily have manners and that's sort of the thing of grub it's like gentility in quotations it's it's, doesn't necessarily mean someone will behave in a in a becoming manner (laughs) there are a lot of images
0: of men in this book we have drake we have grub we have beatrice's father mr Steele, who is such a prankster he invents a whoopee (laughs) (laughs) and he thinks that every murder is is uh just a prank it's he's so great um and then we have the owner of the mansion who is Mr. Ashbrook, he is something else. Um, he is definitely a gentleman, but he's just—he's kind of feminine and a little, a little bit. And he gets what we he calls the fainties. Yes. <laughs> tell me about. Tell me a little bit about him um, and his family. I should should include that yes, too. Yes.
1: Yes, the Ashbrook family. You know, I I think he really comes a lot from Mr. Woodhouse and just the idea of being a bit of a hypochondriac a bit of a health obsessed person but then I I think I also just I live in LA and it's it's very funny sort of the health culture and sometimes people will just do these wild beauty treatments or health regimens that you're just like okay but then you know the longer you're around it the more you're like well I guess that could be (laughs) that could work but it's it's just kind of almost comical but it's like the wellness industry i think is it feels very modern but it's like this has been around for so long like the idea of all these tonics and creams and you know pursuing looking youthful and i think mr ashbrook very much came from that you know wealthy man who has a little a little too much time and money on his hands to seek to seek out those lotions um but i but i had a lot of fun with the ashbrook family you know the the kids are Daniel and Arabella well adult children and Daniel is Beatrice's childhood friend who's who's very bookish and Arabella is kind of the uh she's a bit snobby and full of herself but she's really the the one who sets the fashions in the town um so I I just really was imagining they're they're sort of the the top family in town and what, what would it look like for them in a small town to be the tastemakers? Really? But she's the taste.
0: She's definitely the tastemaker. I love the mystery. I loved some of the terminology and the phrasing, especially captain Pena, his, his, uh seaworthy puns are so fun. Like he cannot say a sentence and he's only been to sea for a year. Yeah. Like, what is he going to be like when he's 20 years, like in 20 years when he's a captain, or, like uh, an admiral or something? He's ridiculous. Hilarious. As that and some of the, um, I actually had to look up some of the words because I, I didn't know them because they were, where did you find some of the the Regency slang and the, the hilarious puns of Captain Pena?
1: I had a lot of fun researching Regency slang, uh, you know, just really Thank you to all the Regency blogs out there creating amazing, helpful posts. And then for Captain Pena, I looked up a lot of naval language and that was really helpful. Um, but the Regency era has such interesting slang. Like you can find on blogs and online full articles about just these crazy phrases that they that they would use back then. And um I had a, I had a lot of fun going through and kind of translating what I wanted him to say into C speak.
0: <laughs> he's hilarious. He and and then we have Frank Fawn who is who's the rake of the yeah. of the, the novel. And everyone thinks that he's just going to romance every female in this uh, in this town, Swampshire. So we have him, but we also have in this town of Swampshire this very like even for even for the Regency, very straight-laced, very uh, specific type of community. Tell me a little bit about uh, about Swampshire and its it not just its founding, but more of how how it came about it and the strictures, especially on women.
1: Yes. So Uh, in the lore of Swampshire. it, It was a place where nobles wanted to go and have a very strict code of etiquette that they felt would kind of elevate their society. And it was a very contained place. And I was just very much inspired growing up in a small town. I think often your reputation becomes so important because everyone knows everyone. Everyone's talking about everyone. And you can sometimes end up imposing these really strict guidelines on people and not always because they will judge you, but because of the perception of judgment. I think a lot of people's censorship comes from self-censorship and maybe worrying about being judged. And obviously in this story, I made them have a literal book of etiquette that they have to follow or they'll be exiled. But I think, um, you know To Paris,
0: no less.
1: Paris, oh, the worst city in the world. But I think that we can all in the modern era probably relate to feeling like, you know, that, that sense of hiding a part of ourselves um, or following some invisible set of etiquette, whether or not that's the best thing for you. So I was very inspired by just, you know, growing up in a small town and feeling that kind of everyone knows everyone type of setting so we have
0: one character I think she is the biggest mystery of the entire of the entire story Mary Steele now she's a little bit Mary Bennett
1: yeah a little bit
0: (laughs) but she's the youngest sister yes and she has the, the girl's got issues and nobody's paying attention.
1: That is at pretty. all. She has a a big secret. I had a lot of fun writing Mary's story, which I uh, had some more obvious lines in my early drafts, and uh, my editor and I decided to make it a little a little subtler. <laughs> but uh, I had a lot of fun writing writing her character. I think, you know, I I'm the oldest of three. And I think often the youngest child, people complain, they, they just get away with so much. And it was fun for me to imagine how much are they getting away with? Do you think that she, her story comes to a happy
0: ending at the end? Or do you think it's un, unsettled? How do you think her story goes in, in in the book?
1: I think for Mary, you know, I I have a moment between her and Beatrice. Late in the book, that for me felt very satisfying to write because I think that she ultimately was able to communicate a lesson that Beatrice needed to learn. And even though Mary still was so private, and maybe the other characters didn't know what was going on with her, I think she was she was seen in that moment, and she did communicate a really huge lesson to her sister. Which I think when a younger sibling is able to sort of teach you something like that. It is really meaningful because I think you see them as an adult in a way that sometimes when you're growing up, you know, you think of your baby sister as always your the baby or you know, I think that in that moment it's it's really a big moment of growing up for both of them. And so for me I I think it's a a happy conclusion for her even though she still has has a a world that maybe everyone else is not privy to. <laughs>
0: So the ending for Beatrice is not what we all expected. How how did you decide to write the ending for Beatrice and Drake?
1: Um you know for me I think my favorite mysteries end in a way where you are both surprised but then you also feel like of course that of course that would happen. It fulfills you know, it pays off certain things that were set up at the beginning. And that was my goal, was to create an ending that felt surprising. But then after you think about it, it's like, no, it makes total sense. Um, And I also wanted it to be somewhat open-ended for the sake of me as a writer and thinking like, I do have other ideas for the two of them. And I, you know, would love for that to sort of be leaving that door open for the possibility. Do you think that there will be a sequel for Beatrice and Drake? I hope there will be. I certainly have uh, a few loose ends from the first book that I have ideas for. So, um, yes, I, I did want to leave that door a little bit open for that possibility because I mean, I I really love those two characters, and I can certainly spend a lot of time with them.
0: They are just so much fun the two of them I love the way he's just he's so grumpy (laughs) and you know that she's just gonna poke at him
1: (laughs) oh yeah I'm a huge fan of like screwball comedy movies and I wanted it to sort of feel like that where you're like the plot is just a woman ruins a man's life and he loves it that's my favorite thing
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's a little bring bringing up baby <laughs> one of my favorite movies I mean,
1: and she just you know she never stops and he can't get enough
0: <laughs> you're doing a book tour right now or what are you so what are you I, busy doing
1: i'm about to head to my hometown in kentucky um and i'm doing an event in my hometown bookstore so that's uh gonna be very special because it's the bookstore where as a kid I would go to author signings there and now I get to be the author which was a dream come true um and then just a few virtual things still kind of figuring out the schedule it's all uh such a rush the book just came out yesterday so it's been a bit of a blur but it's it's just so exciting well
0: I wish you a all the best luck. I hope you, I, I hope lots of people come to your book signing in your hometown and that all the haters are jealous and that everyone <laughs> who supported you is there.
1: Thanks. So <laughs> I really appreciate it. Thank you for all your kind words about the book. I'm, I'm so glad to hear that you enjoyed it.
0: I really loved it. And thank you for agreeing to come on the podcast and you're welcome back anytime.
1: Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be on.
0: I had so much fun talking with Julia. It was actually hard to finish that interview. We could have just kept going. So if you enjoy Regency novels or mystery novels, and I know I do, I highly recommend A Most Agreeable Murder. I'll include a link in the show notes to purchase it if you'd like to read it. Now let's get into our chapter. (laughs) When we last left the Dashwoods, Willoughby had beat a hasty retreat with no promises to ever return. Marianne, of course, was devastated. She cried all day and all night, and we rejoined the family the next morning. Marianne would have thought herself very inexcusable had she been able to sleep at all the first night after parting from Willoughby. She would have been ashamed to look her family in the face the next morning had she not risen from her bed in more need of repose than when she lay down in it. But the feelings which made such composure a disgrace left her in no danger of incurring it. She was awake the whole night, and she wept the greater part of it. She got up with a headache, was unable to talk, and unwilling to take any nourishment, giving pain every moment to her mother and sisters, and forbidding all attempt at consolation from either. Her sensibility was potent enough. There's that word again. Her sensibility was potent enough. Remember that sensibility in this context refers to Marianne's acute perception and responsiveness to something, especially art, literature, landscapes, acute house, etc. Marianne believes with all her heart that morality is grounded In the ability to feel these strong emotions. That's why back in episode 13 she felt like she'd done nothing wrong by going off alone with Willoughby to his aunt's estate, because it felt good, and if it feels good, it must be good. And so here Marian's sensibility is at its max. When breakfast was over, she walked out by herself and wandered about the village of Allenham, indulging the recollection of past enjoyment and crying over the present reverse for the chief of the morning. The evening passed off in the equal indulgence of feeling. She played over every favorite song that she had been used to play to Willoughby, every air in which their voices had been oftenest joined, and sat at the instrument gazing on every line of music that he had written out for her, till her heart was so heavy that no farther sadness could be gained. And this nourishment of grief. Was every day applied she spent whole hours at the pianoforte alternately singing and crying, her voice often totally suspended by her tears in books too, as well as in music, she courted the misery which a contrast between the past and present was certain of giving. She read nothing but what they had been used to read together, such violence of affliction indeed could not be supported for ever. It sunk within a few days into a calmer melancholy. But these employments, to which she daily recurred, her solitary walks and silent meditations, still produced occasional effusions of sorrow as lively as ever. She walks to Allenham and cries, she remembers their time together and cries, she plies the piano, she sings the songs they sang together and cries, she reads the books they read together and cries. Marianne is wallowing. She's done all the things she did with Willoughby and just sobs the whole time, to the point where she can't even sing because she's crying too hard. Who of us have not been there with Marianne, absolutely brokenhearted, over a busted romance? At least I feel for you, Marianne. But the narrator seems to think that heartbreak is supposed to heal quickly, and maybe it should after such short amount of time. Remember, they only knew each other for like three weeks. It was a really short amount of time. But it doesn't always work that way. And definitely not in Marianne's case. But even Marianne can't keep the wallowing up for long as she sinks into what the narrator calls a calmer melancholy. Still sad, but not as dramatic. And that's okay for an adherent of sentiment like Marianne. Melancholy is a feeling of depression and deep thought, and for the romantics and the sentimentalists before them, this was another experience to feel. Melancholy specifically involves reflection, so on her solitary walks and silent meditations, Marianne thinks about Willoughby. What she thinks about him, maybe we'll find out. No letter from Willoughby came, and none seemed expected by Marianne. Her mother was surprised, and Eleanor again became uneasy, but Mrs. Dashwood could find explanations whenever she wanted them, which at least satisfied herself. Remember, Eleanor, said she, how very often Sir John fetches our letters himself from the post and carries them to it. We have already agreed that secrecy may be necessary." And we must acknowledge that it could not be maintained if their correspondence were to pass through Sir john's hands." Eleanor could not deny the truth of this, and she tried to find in it a motive sufficient for their silence; but there was one method so direct, so simple, and, in her opinion, so eligible of knowing the real state of the affair, and of instantly removing all mystery, that she could not help suggesting it to her mother. "Why do you not ask Marianne at once?" said she. Whether she is or is not engaged to Willoughby, from you, her mother, in so kind, so indulgent a mother, the question could not give offence. It would be the natural result of your affection for her. She used to be all on reserve, and to you more especially. I would not ask such a question for the world. Suppose it possible that they are not engaged. What distress would not such an inquiry effect? At any rate, it would be most ungenerous. I should never deserve her confidence again, after forcing from her a confession of what is meant at present to be unacknowledged to any one. I know Marianne's heart. I know that she dearly loves me, and that I shall not be the last to whom the affair is made known, when circumstances make the revealment of it eligible. I would not attempt to force the confidence of any one, of a child much less because a sense of duty would prevent the denial which her wishes might direct. Eleanor thought this generosity overstrained considering her sister's youth, and urged the matter farther, but in vain. Common sense, common care, common prudence were all sunk in Mrs. Dashwood's romantic delicacy. All right, the days pass and Willoughby doesn't write to marry in. But While she doesn't seem surprised by this, Eleanor is mystified. It adds even more to the ambiguity of their relationship. In chapter 15, Eleanor and her mother were arguing about the nature of this relationship, and Mrs. D was confident that they were engaged, but Eleanor wasn't so sure and wanted some sort of proof. And she told her mother then that if they discover Marion and Willoughby are writing to each other, that they'll take that as proof of engagement, but there are no letters. Still, Mrs. D says that's not proof of anything. Lack of proof isn't proof in itself. After all, she argues, Sir John picks up their letters and would definitely see the direction and handwriting on any letters to the cottage, and we know he and his mother-in-law would laugh their asses off and tease Marianne to death about Willoughby even more than they already do. Secrecy is vital for Willoughby and Marianne because he is reliant on inheriting from his aunt Mrs. Smith and Mrs. D believes that Mrs. Smith might not approve of a girl with no dowry like Marianne. That is the basis of Mrs. D's entire theory of why they're keeping this romance a secret. But Eleanor is begging her mother again to ask Marianne about an engagement And Mrs. D, again, says she's not going to do it. But this time her reasoning is because if they're not engaged, asking would hurt Marion's feelings and distress her. She also says Marion would never trust her again, which is probably overstating it. But this is a 16-year-old girl we're talking about, so maybe not. And she would never force a child to tell her things, which is still a thing parents struggle with now. Mrs. D has such trouble being a mother to her girls when they need one. She prefers to be that friend who can be confided in. She's much more of a friend to her daughters than an actual parent, I think. But Eleanor thinks her mother is worrying too much about upsetting Marianne when what she needs to know is the truth, especially considering Marianne's youth. Mrs. Deed needs to talk to her daughter about this. It's common sense to Eleanor. She needs to be a mother, not a friend. But in the end, Eleanor realizes that her mother does not have a lot of common sense. She also has that romantic delicacy, that sensibility. But remember, again, how sure Mrs. D was of an engagement in Chapter 15. Now she's kind of backtracking on it. Does Mrs. D have doubts? I think she does. Because despite all her protests and reasoning, Even she can't ignore the evidence of her own eyes over her sensibilities. But I think she's in denial about it, as Eleanor sees common sense, common care, common prudence were all sunk in Mrs. Dashwood's romantic delicacy. It was several days before Willoughby's name was mentioned before Mary, and by any of her family, Sir John and Mrs. Jennings, indeed, were not so nice. Their witticisms added pain to many a painful hour. But one evening, Mrs. Dashwood, accidentally taking up a volume of Shakespeare, exclaimed, "'We have never finished Hamlet, Marianne. Our dear Willoughby went away before we could get through it. We will put it by that when he comes again—but it may be months, perhaps, before that happens.' "'Months!' cried Marianne, with strong surprise. "'No, nor many weeks.' Mrs. Dashwood was sorry for what she had said, but it gave Eleanor pleasure for it produced a reply from Marianne so expressive of confidence in Willoughby and knowledge of his intentions. Okay, we actually have information, the one thing that we have been looking for for so long, and Eleanor is thrilled about her mother's mistake because the way Marianne states this is so assured. It won't be months. It won't even be more, too many more weeks before Willoughby returns. But this is at odds with what he had told Mrs. D. and Eleanor when he left. He said he never visits Mrs. Smith twice in a year. So maybe he told Marianne something else before he left, or she somehow got some communication with him. But however she got this information, Eleanor is glad to hear Marianne's confidence. But Mrs. D is just sorry she brought up the subject when she'd been so careful to avoid it. And I really like that we get the mention of a book here. Marianne and Willoughby were reading Hamlet, which is so perfectly fitting for a couple of romantics like then. Not romantic in the sexy way, but romantic in the dramatic, terrible way. Considering Hamlet goes mad and everyone in the play dies, that would definitely appeal to Marianne. I think the two of them have a thing for Shakespeare. Remember back in episode 12 that the horse Willoughby gave to Marianne was named Queen Mab after the wicked fairy Mercutio talks about in Romeo and Juliet. Now, the fairy gives magical dreams to lovers when she's in a good mood, and if she's in a bad mood, she'll give you a venereal disease. Hamlet was highly influential during the Romantic period, which began roughly around 1780 and continued in England up until about the 1830s, the Romantics identified with Hamlet's melancholy, his brooding reflection, and his isolation. Wait a minute, who does that sound like? (laughs) Okay, back to the text, and we pick up with the Dashwood sisters a week after Willoughby left. One morning, about a week after his leaving the country, Marianne was prevailed on to join her sisters in their usual walk, instead of wandering away by herself. Hitherto, she had carefully avoided every companion in her rambles. If her sisters intended to walk on the downs, she directly stole away towards the lanes. If they talked of the valleys, she was as speedy in climbing the hills, and could never be found where the others set off but at length she was secured by the exertions of Eleanor, who greatly disapproved such continual seclusion. They walked along the road through the valley, and chiefly in silence, for Marianne's mind could not be controlled, and Eleanor, satisfied with gaining one point, would not then attempt more. Beyond the entrance of the valley, where the country, though still rich, was less wild and more open, a long stretch of the road which they had travelled on first coming to Barton, lay before them, and on reaching that point they stopped to look around them, and examined a prospect which formed the distant of their view from the cottage, from a spot which they had never happened to reach in any of their walks before. Amongst the objects of the scene they soon discovered an animated one. It was a man on horseback riding towards them. In a few minutes they could distinguish him to be a gentleman, And in a moment afterwards, Marian rapturously exclaimed, It is he! It is indeed! I know it is! And was hastening to meet him when Eleanor cried out, Indeed, Marian, I think you are mistaken. It is not Willoughby. The person is not tall enough for him and has not his air." He has! He has! cried Marian. I am sure he has. His air, his coat, his horse. I knew how soon he would come. She watched eagerly on as she spoke, and Eleanor... To screen Marianne from particularly, as she sp- felt almost certain of it not being Willoughby, quickened her pace and kept up with her. They were soon within thirty yards of the gentleman. Marianne looked again, her heart sunk within her, and abruptly turning around, she was hurrying back when the voices of both her sisters were raised to detain her. A third, almost as well known as Willoughby's, joined them in begging her to stop, and she turned round with surprise to see and welcome Edward Ferris. Well, a man showed up, just not the one Marianne was expecting. So Edward Ferris returns to the story at last, making the visit that he had promised Mrs. D before the family left New Orleans for their new home at Barton. All those chapters ago. Let's go back to the beginning of this reading. It's been a week since Willoughby left, and Marianne's wallowing has changed to wandering alone over the hills of the lanes, wherever her sisters are not. But today, Eleanor has reasoned or bullied her way into staying with her and Margaret because she thinks it's not good for Marianne to be walking alone. It's bad enough she's alone in her own head, being all Hamlet and stuff, but going on solitary walks over the Downs isn't good, although it's exactly in Marianne's idiom. And perhaps this is on Eleanor's mind, too. She's a no-nonsense type, but also has the common sense. You never know what or who is on those downs or on the roads, after all. So she's walking with her sisters in the road, on a part of the road they haven't traveled since they moved to Barton, and far in the distance, probably over the fields, the three of them see a man on horseback. From his dress, which is a top hat and tailcoat, most likely, they can tell he's a gentleman and not a worker. Of course, with her thoughts on Willoughby, Marianne's going to think it's him. She doesn't say his name, but Eleanor knows who she means, Margaret knows, the narrator knows, and they all make sure we know. They also know it's not him. Even on horseback and so far away, they know that this figure is too short and doesn't have Willoughby's air, meaning his outward demeanor. But Marianne is so sure it's him. She says he has his air, his coat, and his horse. How could she be so wrong? I think maybe her romantic sensibilities again are making her see things the way she wants them to see them. She's practically running towards the rider, and Eleanor has to hurry to keep up with her all the while, convinced that it's definitely not Willoughby. And then they get within 30 yards, it's like 27 meters, When Marianne suddenly looks up, realizes she's wrong, and spins around abruptly to walk in the other direction. She realizes that it's not her man, and she actually seems to be running away. Her sisters pass her. They meet the man who they finally recognize as their friend, and all three of them have to call her back to them because she's so embarrassed. She's Probably heading off home to play on her piano, where she can sing sad songs about Willoughby. But she stops. I tell you, they have really good eyes, because I wouldn't be able to recognize my partner from a football field away, and he's six-two with blond hair nearly, t- nearly to his waist, so he's kind of distinctive. Let's find out how Marianne reacts to her disappointment. He was the only person in the world who could at that moment be forgiven for not being Willoughby, the only one who could have gained a smile from her. But she dispersed her tears to smile on him, and in her sister's happiness forgot for a time her own disappointment. He dismounted, and giving his horse to the servant, walked back with them to Barton, whither he was purposely coming to visit them. He was welcomed by them all with great cordiality, but especially by Marianne, who showed more warmth and regard in her reception of him than even Eleanor herself. To Marianne, indeed, the meeting between Edward and her sister was but a continuation of that unaccountable coldness which she had often observed at Norland in their mutual behavior. On Edward's side, more particularly, There was a deficiency of all that a lover ought to look and say on such an occasion. He was confused, seemed scarcely sensible of pleasure in seeing them, looked neither rapturous nor gay, said little but what was forced from him by questions, and distinguished Eleanor by no mark of affection. Marianne saw and listened with increasing surprise. She began almost to feel a dislike of Edward. And it ended, as every feeling must end with her, by carrying back her thoughts to Willoughby, whose manners formed a contrast sufficiently striking to those of her brother-elect. So I have to ask one question before we go into Marianne's thoughts. What was the servant riding? Or was he stuck walking next to a horse all the way from wherever they came to? Which we haven't found out yet, but hopefully it wasn't that far. Because the text says a rider, just one. I'm sorry I'm being nitpicky, but it's funny because it's a rider when there's definitely two riders. The servant was definitely riding something. Edward is the one person in the entire world Marian can forgive for not being Willoughby. Because if you remember from back chapter thirty and four, she is convinced that Eleanor is in love with him and that he loves Eleanor. But Marianne is shocked by their civility towards each other. They don't throw themselves into each other's arms and weep like she probably would have to Willoughby. They act so calmly towards each other that Marianne finds it unaccountably cold, especially because Edward is more awkward than ever. He's confused and silent, only speaking answer questions and barely even looking at Eleanor who he was supposedly coming to see and Marianne's like what is his problem it's getting to the point where she decides she might actually dislike him and then she goes back to thinking about Willoughby looks like she took back all her forgiveness oh and brother elect refers to the possibility of the two of them marrying the Dashwood girls and becoming brothers-in-law okay back to the story After a short silence, which succeeded the first surprise and inquiries of meeting, Marianne asked Edward if he came directly from London. No, he had been in Devonshire a fortnight. A fortnight, she repeated, surprised at his being so long in the same country with Eleanor without seeing her before. He looked rather distressed, as he added, that he had been staying with some friends near Plymouth. "'Have you been lately in Sussex?' asked Eleanor." I was at Norland about a month ago. "'And how does dear, dear Norland look?' cried Marianne. "'Dear, dear Norland,' said Eleanor, "'probably looks much the same as it always does at this time of year, "'the woods and walks thickly covered with dead leaves.'" "'Oh!' cried Marianne. "'With what transporting sensation have I formerly seen them fall? "'How have I delighted, as I walked "'to see them driven in showers about me by the wind?' What feelings have they, the seasons, the air, altogether inspired? Now there is no one to regard them, they are seen only as a nuisance, swept hastily off, and driven as much as possible from the sight. But for Marian, this is a great example of how the cult of sensibility experiences nature. Even the most common natural occurrence, like Leaves falling in the lanes in the autumn. I'll call it autumn since the setting is in England, even though autumn is a French word. It's fine. The beauty of nature causes great emotional responses, a transporting sensations of seeing leaves fall. While Marianne and leaf peepers extolled the beauty of wind-driven leaves blowing across the road and lying thickly over the lawn, It is not everyone, said Eleanor who has your passion for dead leaves no my feelings are not often shared not often understood but sometimes they are some people understanding her feelings like that guy what's his name oh yeah willoughby as she said this she sunk into reverie for a few moments but rousing herself again now edward said she calling his attention to the prospect here is barton valley look up to it and be tranquil if you can Look at those hills. Did you ever see their equal? To the left is Barton Park, amongst those woods and plantations. You may see the end of the house, and there beneath the farthest hill which rises with such grandeur is our cottage. It is a beautiful country, he replied, but these bottoms must be dirty in winter. How can you think of dirt with such objects before you? Because, he replied, smiling, among the rest of the objects before me, I see a very dirty lane. How strange, said Marianne, to herself as she walked on. Have you an agreeable neighborhood here? Are the Middletons pleasant people? Not at all, answered Marianne. We could not be more unfortunately situated. Mary Anne cried her sister, how can you say so? How can you be so unjust? They are a very respectable family, Mr. Ferris and towards us have behaved in the friendliest manner. Have you forgot, Marianne, how many pleasant days we have owed to them? No, said Marianne in a low voice, nor how many painful moments. Melinor took no notice of this and directed her attention to their visitor, endeavored to support something like discourse with him, by talking of their present residence, its conveniences, etc., extolling from him the occasional question and remark. His coldness and reserve mortified her severely. She was vexed and half-angry, but resolved to regulate her behavior to him by the past rather than the present, as she avoided every appearance of resentment or displeasure and treated him as she thought he ought to be treated from the family connection. Going way back to the beginning of the section, Marianne is trying her best to get Edward to say nice things about the countryside, and I intentionally didn't discuss Edward in the sections before, so I could discuss his entire demeanor here. Edward has always been this serious-seeming guy. He's not fun-loving like his brother, who was described back in chapter three, and is not obsessed with money like his sister, the young Mrs. Dashwood who kicked the family out of New Orleans while they were still mourning her father-in-law. But now Edward is cold and awkward and nervous It doesn't seem like he wants to be there. We learn that he had visited his sister at New Orleans about a month before, but for the past two weeks he'd been here in Devonshire, where he had visited friends near Plymouth. Plymouth is a port city in the southwest of England, on the border of Cornwall and southwest of Exeter, where Barton is located. Nowadays, it would be about an hour to drive between the two cities, but on horseback, it probably took half a day, maybe longer. If it had been too much longer, however, riding horses would not have been feasible, so the fact that he was riding was a hint he hadn't come far. Finally, at the end of the chapter, we get Eleanor's point of view. She is mortified by Marianne's free opinion of the Middleton family. But also, by Edward's attitude, it's not too surprising to us for Marian to think he's acting coldly, but for Eleanor to think that is interesting. But he's answering Marion's questions, although he's rather negative. He says the country is beautiful, but that those lanes and valley bottoms must get dirty or muddy. Besides that, he's kind of taciturn. He tells where he's been but not who he visited or why he had been visiting and for the length of these section we don't get a lot of Edward or why the girls think he's acting coldly but he does ask after the neighbors and landlords the Middletons who Marianne of course has to be rude about and hint again about Willoughby because Marianne has to bring everything back to Willoughby I wonder if she's thinking about those painful moments of being embarrassed by Sir John and Mrs. Jennings But while Marianne is half ignoring him and half bringing everything back around to Willoughby, Eleanor is angry at Edward's attitude. He's here, but he's not acting like he wants to be here. But Eleanor knows her duty, unlike Marianne, and she holds her. She is so polite to him, regardless of how cold or taciturn he's acting. She understands that it is her duty to act like the welcoming lady that she is or will be someday. And she brings him home to the cottage where he's welcome and immediately treated like a family member, which he he is. He's their brother-in-law. And that's where we will leave Eleanor, Marianne, and Edward for today. Thank you for listening to and Sensibility. Today's episode was written and edited by me, Casey Meserve. You can listen to all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify. It really help other people find the podcast. You can write to me at EntsInsensibility at gmail.com and follow EntsInsensibility on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, If you'd like to purchase any of the books mentioned on the show, check out the bookshelf page on ensensensibility.com, where we also have show notes on every show and a lot more. And if you really liked the show, you can buy me a coffee on Ko-Fi.com. I will leave the link in the show notes. Have a lovely day and I hope you'll listen again soon.